Welcome to Words of Grace, radio ministry of Elder Ben Winslet, pastor of the Flint River Primitive Baptist Church near Huntsville, Alabama. We invite you to stay tuned to today's broadcast. The title of today's broadcast is The Role of God the Son in Salvation. Last week, if you caught the radio broadcast, you know that we began a new short three-part series on the roles of the three persons of the Trinity in salvation, the respective roles of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit in the salvation of sinners and saving people from their sins. Our theme passages for this series is found in the book of Romans, chapter 8, verses 29 and 30, which simply read, For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called, and whom he called, them he also justified, and whom he justified, them he also glorified. There in that passage, you have what are commonly referred to as the doctrines of grace. God has foreknown and thereby predestinated people to be conformed to the image of his son Jesus. He has justified those people. He calls those people. And one day those people will be glorified. And I love that the word glorify here is in the past tense, even though we are not yet in glorified bodies because we have not been fully conformed to the image of his son Jesus. That will happen in the resurrection. God speaks of it in the past tense in the word of God because it is as good as done. God has purposed it. God will also bring it to pass. Now, in this series on the roles of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, in salvation, the three-in-one God, and each respective role of the three persons of the Trinity in salvation. This is something that I do, and I enjoy doing from time to time. I feel called to do this from time to time on the radio, because all of us need firming up on this doctrine, and some who listen to Words of Grace may not actually have this squared away yet in their mind. And so whether you're a little rusty on this concept that we talk about in this series, or this is something that you've never heard for the first time, or maybe you believe this and you just need to hear it again for the sake of amening what the Word of God teaches, this series is for you, our radio listeners. And again, this is something that we do from time to time here on the radio just because we need to hear these deep doctrinal subjects expounded upon for the benefit of our own personal spiritual walk with the Lord. Now, as a bit of a reminder back to last week's message, this concept that we talk about over these three weeks here on Words of Grace emphatically declares Trinitarianism. That is, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit all perform a distinct role in our salvation, though these roles aren't disconnected either. That is, God the Father, before the world began, played a role in our salvation. He sends the Son of God into the world to fulfill another role in our salvation, and God the Spirit is sent into our hearts to fulfill another role in salvation. But at the same time, there's complete harmony and unity in the Godhead about our salvation. These roles are not disconnected. The Son, as we observed last week, says that he was sent into the world to do the will of the Father, which is a great example of the unity in the Godhead regarding salvation. But these are three distinct roles as 
highlighted in Scripture. As we'll see today, Jesus died upon the cross for our sins. It wasn't God the Father that died upon the cross, and it wasn't God the Holy Spirit who inhabited a body and died upon the cross, but it was God the Son incarnate in human form who died upon the cross for us. Though God's essence did not die, the Son immediately at the death of that physical body was with his Father through the eternal Spirit, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. The book of Hebrews says that through the Holy Spirit, Jesus presented that offering unto his Father. The essence of God the Son did not cease to be at Jesus' death at the cross, but God the Son became a human being and died upon the cross for us. Jesus was God incarnate, and Jesus died upon the cross. And so, much like Trinitarianism is, These are three distinct roles, just like Father, Son, and Spirit are three distinct persons of the Trinity, and yet this is all one salvation. The works of these three persons of the Godhead are not disconnected or separate, but they are connected one with another, and the Godhead is in total unity. God is one God. There is perfect harmony and unity in the mind and purpose of the Godhead about this and every other thing, because God is one God. There are not three gods. There is but one God, and God is fully harmonious within himself about his will, what he would have happen, and that includes salvation. That's the most significant and crucial thing that God purposes to do, to save people from their sins. That's what all of this is about, for the glory of his Son, Jesus Christ. Now, as we've already mentioned, last week we talked about the role of God the Father, and just to summarize that in brief, as we look forward to the role of God the Son in salvation. God the Father and His role in salvation was to ordain people to eternal life. We observe that from Acts chapter 13, that as many as were ordained to eternal life believed the message of the gospel that Paul preached. From Ephesians chapter 1, we read that God has chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world, that is, God the Father has chosen us in His Son before the foundation of the world, And as we read here in Romans 8 and also in Ephesians chapter 1, God the Father has predestinated the people that he elected. And so all through the Bible, especially in the New Testament, we read this word elect, and it's used as a noun, a body of people, a group of people. Those who are saved are referred to as the elect. And again, that's not popular in today's time. There have been periods in Christian history where that doctrine was very well received, and it was very popular. In today's time, that's not the case, but it doesn't make it any less true. It doesn't make it any less biblical, and you would have to render that word invisible to your eyes to not recognize that election is a biblical concept. You can look up the word chosen, choose, elect in a concordance, and you can see all the different places where Jesus used that word. The writers of the gospel quoted Jesus using that word. Paul uses those words. Peter uses those words. John uses those words, and they're referred to by other writers as well with different terminology. So that's undeniably a biblical concept, that again, it's the role of God the Father before the world began. He ordained people to eternal life. He elected them. He predestinated them. And because of that, there's no separating us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord, because this is something that God has foreordained. God has predestinated this. There's no undoing it. There's no resisting it. There's no fighting it. But this is something that's going to be in the world. God has elected people to salvation, and their salvation is certain. Today we consider largely the role of God the Son in our salvation. 
Notice this from the book of Romans chapter 8, our theme passage for this series. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called, and whom he called, them he also justified. The word here, justified, brings us to the heart of today's focus. Borrowing language from the book of Job, chapter 9 and verse 1, how can a man be just with God? How can man, who is sinful, be just with God, righteous in the sight of God, when every single one of us, as we observed last week, is by nature a child of wrath even as others, before we are quickened to salvation, we are dead in trespasses and in sins, we have all sinned and come short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death. God is holy, God is just, God has purer eyes than to behold iniquity, God cannot clear the guilty, that is to say, he can't sweep justice under the rug, he can't ignore iniquity, he can't wink at iniquity. If we're all sinners, and God is holy, God never forgets, God can't just ignore justice because he's a God of justice and judgment, how then can a man, a sinner, be just with God? Well, that's what we'll focus on today on our broadcast. You see, while God the Father elected people, they're still condemned sinners, and that presents unto us a great dilemma. How can they stand before a just God? Someone would have to take away their iniquity. Something has to give. Have you ever heard that expression when there's a dilemma and you just say something has to give? Well, God is immutable. God is a God of justice and judgment. God's justice is not going to give. God's attributes are eternal. He's an eternal God. He's immutable from everlasting to everlasting. He is God. He changes not. By the way, he changes not. Therefore, the sons of Jacob are not consumed. God doesn't change. So we know that that's not going to go away. We know that God's hatred of sin is not going to go away. God's wrath upon sin is not going to go away. So what has to happen then is the sin has to go away. Well, what can happen to take the sin away? Can you undo the sins of your past? You can't. I can't. Can you do enough good works to outweigh the bad works, to make it where God doesn't see the bad works anymore? You can't. You could spend the rest of your life never having sinned again, but because of the sins of your past, you're still a condemned criminal. It's like saying this. Let's say a man is guilty of murder, and he gets away with it for a while, but he spends 30 years never committing another crime, living as a perfect model citizen, but the police finally investigate it sufficiently to determine that he was the killer. They arrest him, and he confesses to it all. But he says, well, I did kill that person. However, I've not done anything wrong since then, so I think you should just let me go. What would the justice system do in that case? They wouldn't let the man go. The man is a guilty criminal. That is all of us in the sight of God. And so we can't take away our sins. Someone else has to take away our iniquity. And that someone else is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. When explaining the concept of God's sovereignty and salvation and the phase of our salvation that God the Father is responsible for, God the Father has ordained us and elected us and predestinated us. Some people will say, well, if God has elected us to salvation, and that's what starts salvation, that's on what basis salvation occurs, then why did the Lord Jesus have to even come into the world and die? And that is a good question. You might have asked that question yourself. 
as someone explains the doctrines of grace to you? Well, here's the answer to that. Jesus had to come into the world because someone had to take away the iniquity of God's people, or that people that we talked about last week who were ordained to eternal life, who were elected, who were predestinated, those people would not have the ability to escape the wrath of God at the end of time because they would yet be in their sins and guilty. And again, if we're guilty and if we're sinful, we can't stand before God. So let's turn to the book of Matthew chapter 1 and verse 21 and read from the lips of a very angel himself what God's solution is to remedy the sinfulness of his people. And this brings us directly to the work of God the Son, the Son of God, Jesus Christ our Lord, in salvation. As an angel speaks to Joseph, as Joseph has learned that Mary, his wife, is with child, this angel says for him to fear not to take Mary, his wife. That thing that is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. What is the remedy to this great dilemma of sinfulness among God's people that would sever them from the presence of God for eternity? The remedy to this problem is Jesus Christ being sent into the world to die for them. Thou shalt call his name Jesus, which means Savior, for he shall save his people from their sins. Now, there's a couple of ways that I want to talk about how Jesus saved us from our sins, and we'll hit several different points here. So I would encourage you to take notes or perhaps to go to our website, flintriverpbc.org, as this radio program is usually added to the website on Mondays after it airs over the weekend, and maybe listen to some of these points again. Jesus came to save his people, and he does so, number one, by living a perfect life. If Jesus had lived a life that was not perfect, then he would be like any of us. The reason that I can't die for someone else's sins, maybe my wife's sins, maybe my children's sins, is because I have my own sins to answer for, and I am not worthy to die for another person, and God accept my death as a substitutionary sacrifice. And so Jesus came to save his people, and he does so by living a perfect life. We're going to see how Jesus is our substitutionary Savior in these two points that I have about how Jesus saved his people from their sins. Notice this in the book of Matthew chapter 5 and verse 17. Think not that I'm come to destroy the law or the prophets. I'm not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Jesus fulfilled the law of God. The law was holy. The law was good. The law was perfect. And yet Jesus fulfills that, not destroying it, not cutting it off prematurely, as it were, but bringing it to its proper close. Jesus fulfills the law in that he kept the law to a jot and a tittle. He kept the law perfectly. Jesus never broke a law that God had given for him to keep. He lived a perfect life. He did everything that his father would have him to do. You notice this in the book of Matthew chapter 3, when Jesus was baptized, John the Baptist, as Jesus comes to be baptized, says, I have need to be baptized of thee, and comest thou to me? And Jesus answering said unto him, Suffer it to be so now, for thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus is baptized because it was a commandment of God, and it fulfills all righteousness. 
Did Jesus have any sins to confess? As many people confess their sins being baptized? No, not at all. He'd never sinned. He lived a sin-free life. He is undefiled. And yet, he's baptized to fulfill all righteousness. In the book of 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 22, we read of Christ who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. Jesus had never sinned, and there was no guile, no deceit, no error at all found in his mouth at any time in his life. You know, that's interesting because it is so easy to sin with our words, is it not? James talks about the fact that if a man can control his tongue, his words, then that man can control every other part of his life and his body because the tongue is the hardest part of our bodies to control. I'm sure we've all had moments where we said things that we regret saying. We might have gossiped about somebody. We might have said something mean to someone. We may have said something that was harsh and profane as we injure ourselves working on a project. Whatever the case may be, our tongues are hard to control, and yet there was no guile found in the mouth of Jesus. This is why God had to be incarnate to take away the sins of his people, because none of us are good enough. None of us could accomplish this. A man had to die for other men, so an ox or an angel couldn't die and take away the sins of humans. A human had to die, but at the same time, no human is good enough, and so God himself becomes a human being to take away the sin of his people. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15, We have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as are we, yet without sin. What does this say? It says that Jesus was tempted in all points like as we are. He was tempted in every way. Satan solicited him throughout his life, tried to get him to do things that he shouldn't do. But Jesus, not having any sin, never lusted to do those things, and as we read here, was without sin. Now, the exhortation here is that Jesus knows, as our high priest, what we're going through. He knows what we experience in this life, because everything this world has to offer in a negative way, he experienced. And so we can come boldly to the throne of grace to obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. But notice that we can do those things, because Jesus was tempted yet without sin, and he knows what life is like in this world. Now, by the way, we use the word tempt today to mean lust after something, but tempt here means Satan is trying to sell Jesus this sin or solicit Jesus with this sin, and God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. So when Satan tries to sell this to Jesus, Jesus defeats him every single time because he was without sin. He, yea, is without sin, and he is our great high priest that we can come boldly to. So Jesus saves his people by living a perfect life, keeping all the law of God, every command that God would have him to do, and never breaking even the smallest of commands. But then, as a perfect man, a man having done no wrong, a man having lived a perfect life, the only human being that has ever kept the law of God perfectly in its entirety, this man died upon the cross for God's people in their stead. In the book of Isaiah, chapter 53, one of the most beautiful passages of Jesus, the Messiah in all the Bible. Notice in verse 6, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. God, upon this perfect man, God the Father, 
lays our iniquity as he is upon the cross. And as we read in Colossians, he took the handwriting of ordinances that was against us out of the way, nailing it to his cross. He died upon the cross, and he left our iniquity there. He suffered for it, though he had committed no iniquity of his own. God the Father laid on him our iniquity. He suffered for our iniquity, and as we read here in verse 10, it pleased the Lord, it satisfied his wrath, that is, to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the travail of his soul, and shall be satisfied by his knowledge, shall my righteous servant, what? Justify many. How shall a man be just with God? Because the Lord Jesus Christ was a perfect man who lived a perfect life, and he died upon the cross for those that the Father had given him. Now, again, last week we emphasized that point as we looked at the covenant nature of the sacrifice of Christ upon the cross, how Jesus came into the world to die for those the Father had given him. He gave him power over all flesh that he should give eternal life to as many as the Father has given him, John 17. And so, looking at the flip side of that coin today, all that were given to him were saved by him completely and entirely. In the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21, we read another description of this sacrifice of Christ taking away the sins of God's people. For he, the Father, hath made him... Christ to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Christ knew no sin, and yet, in a sense, the Father made him to be sin for us when he was upon the cross of Calvary. He made him the sin bearer. He made him the sacrifice for sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Now, we have to be very careful with this verse. So, let me just very plainly say Jesus never had sin as a part of his being, but our sins were laid upon him. So this doesn't say he made him to be a sinner. God forbid. Jesus was righteous at the moment that he died, but our iniquities were laid upon him, and he suffered as if he had committed the very transgressions that you and I have committed all through our lives, and yea, will continue to commit. God the Father made him to be sin for us, the sin-bearer, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Now, Jesus saves his people by, number one, living a perfect life, and number two, dying as if he were guilty of our sins. And because he did that, guess what? We will be made the righteousness of God in him. You know how God sees you today if you're a person in Christ? He sees you as totally righteous. He doesn't see the sins you committed yesterday. He doesn't see the sins that you committed when you were a youth. He doesn't see you back-talking your parents. He doesn't see you whining because you didn't get your way as a toddler. We come forth from the womb speaking lies. We are shapen in iniquity and conceived in sin. Never let anybody tell you that we're pure as infants and uncondemned until the age of 12 when the so-called age of accountability expires. No, we are sinners from the moment of our births. And Jesus took away our iniquity. And not only that, he gives us his righteousness. And so we are righteous in him, in the sight of God. God views us, if we are in Christ, as if we lived the very life 
of Jesus Christ. Now, let's get a little bit of a glimpse into glory as we think about this innumerable host of people who have been saved through the sacrificial death of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Revelation chapter 5 and verse 9, we get a glimpse of this great innumerable host of people who are saved by Christ and will be in glory. Here, there are a portion of them in glory, worshiping around the throne of God. They sing a new song saying, Thou art worthy to take the book. They're singing to Christ. And to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain, and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood, out of every kindred, and tongue, and people, and nation, and hast made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. What is it that we are? We are kings and priests, we are redeemed, we have been washed whiter than snow, By the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, all of our stains of sin have been purged. We are righteous, not in and of ourselves, but through the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice there are people in glory today redeemed out of every nation under heaven because Christ died for them. The role of the Son of God, God the Son, in salvation is to save them through his sacrificial death upon the cross. Now, regarding this sacrificial work, I want to point out a couple of statements from the preaching of Christ and the preaching of the apostles. In the book of John chapter 14 and verse 6, Jesus saith unto Thomas, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Now remember last week we read, no man comes unto Christ except he's drawn of the Father. Here we read, no man comes unto the Father but by Christ. And I think we can see there the harmony and the unity within the Godhead and salvation. No man comes to the Son, but the Father draws him. And no man comes unto the Father except through the Son. Remember, he and his Father are one, as we read in John chapter 10. There are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one, three, and yet also one. And the only way for us to be with God in glory after this world ends is through the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the book of Acts chapter 4 and verse 12, as the apostles are publicly preaching to the offense of many in Jerusalem, Peter, being filled with the Holy Ghost, makes a statement in verse 12, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. The only way of salvation is Christ. There is salvation in no other. And this is the only name given among men whereby we must be saved. We must be saved. God's people are secure in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we'll close today's message thinking about this work of the Son of God in salvation by simply saying that The death of Christ and the salvation that he brings his people is the heart of the message of the gospel. Paul would say in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 2, And I, brethren, when I came unto you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God, for I determined not to know anything among you, save Jesus Christ and him crucified. This gospel we preach is the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. According to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul declares the gospel, how Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he rose again according to the scriptures on the third day. This is the message of the gospel, that Jesus died for our sins 
He is our righteousness, and the only hope we have of being with Him in glory is through His death. And praise God, we can look at the resurrection and know that things like this, what we're talking about today, it's not a myth, it's not a fairy tale, it's not a fable, but Jesus was declared to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. We know that we will be with Him in glory because He rose again. He is risen, and because He is risen, we know what He said upon the cross was true when He said, It is finished. Again, I'm Ben Winslet, thanking you for listening to Words of Grace today, inviting you to write and let me know that you've received the broadcast, and also to tune in again next week at this time. Until then, may the Lord's richest blessings be yours, is my prayer. If you enjoy the messages you hear on Words of Grace, consider this your invitation to visit a Primitive Baptist Church in your community. An online directory is available at marchtozion.com. Copies of this and other broadcasts are available for download on iTunes and on our website. To contact us, address your correspondence to Words of Grace Radio, 641 Moontown Road, Brownsboro, Alabama, 35741 or visit us online at flintriverpbc.org.